We're continuing in our series on Revelation today, and we're getting into uh, the worship that happens in heaven in the book of Revelation. So um, I've told you all before, I'm a gigantic nerd. I am a big Tolkien fan. Um, you're talking Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, the books, the movies, all that stuff. I love it. Can't get enough. But there's one thing that Tolkien does in his writing that while I uh, kind of appreciate it intellectually, I don't always care for. Tolkien has this habit of grinding all of the plot in his stories to a halt so that the characters can bust out a song and sing. He'll stop everything and spend like a page and a half describing this little song that has next to nothing to do with the plot of the book before moving on and then never referencing it again. The most famous instance of this is this character named Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is a character in the Fellowship of the Ring that serves absolutely no plot purpose. In fact, when they made the movie version of Lord of the Rings, they left him completely out of it. And it did not affect the story one bit. He exists to give the hobbits this little break from their adventure and then sing a bunch of nonsense songs that really don't make a whole lot of sense and then disappear entirely and never get referenced again. Here's a sample of one of Tom Bombadil's songs that Tolkien thought was so important he just had to include it in his epic book. He says, hey, come Mary Dole, Mary Dole, my darling. Light goes where the weather wind and the feathered starling. Down along under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady, lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as a willow wand, clearer than the water. Never reverenced again. <laughs> so there's this indication there's no indication that, that Tolkien included Tom Bombadil in his story other than he thought that Tom and his songs were cool all by themselves. They were worthwhile on their own. They didn't need to contribute to the plot of the book in order to contribute to the beauty of the storytelling. I think Tolkien included this part to show that this world that he was creating was going to be worth saving because beautiful things and beautiful people like old Tom Bombadil are knocking around out there somewhere. And therefore, we need to save this world. If I tell you this to confess that when I read Lord of the Rings, I usually skim right the heck over old Tom the Bombadil and all of his songs. I see that block text coming that indicates that one of his nonsense songs is coming and I just skip on over it to the next paragraph. I, I do that pretty much for all the songs in Lord of the Rings. But I have another thing to confess to you. I kind of also tend to do that when I'm reading scripture. I get to the part where people are singing, and I say, well, it's so nice that these folks are singing, but I don't need to read their song. <laughs> I don't have the music to it. And it's really ever, really, rarely ever relevant to the plot of the story that this person sang a song. So I skim to that part and I get to the important stuff. And the problem with this is that I'm pretty sure in the book of Revelation that the songs are the important stuff. Like Tolkien, I think John the Revelator has a good reason for including these songs. 
They might not be relevant to the plot of the book. They might not help us decipher the meaning of the scrolls and all that stuff. But they provide a beauty in the story and a reason for being that goes beyond the plot of the book of Revelation. So this week we're looking for a vision of what worship is heaven worship in heaven is like from John's perspective. We're looking at these songs that get sung to God and the kinds of people and creatures that are doing that singing. You'll notice that many of the songs we sing in our hymnal and that you hear on Christian radio are pulled from these very pages. In fact, I picked the songs that we're singing today because they originate in the pages of this the more I study Revelation, the more I'm convinced that these two chapters, chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, are perhaps the most vitally important parts of the book. And if we rush over the worship songs to get to the dragons and the beasts and the horsemen and the seals, then we miss out on what God has for us and what worship is all about. So let's dig into the songs today. Let's consider the worship that's going on in heaven and then kind of ask ourselves, how does our worship measure up? We're starting off with Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After this, I looked up, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I stood, I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, and the one seated on the throne, and the one seated there looks like jasper and a carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their head. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal, around the throne. On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with a face like a human face and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle and the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and inside day and night without ceasing they sing holy 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 the lord god the almighty who was and is and is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the throne, who is seated on the, the one who is seated on the throne, and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This chapter serves as a table setting for what goes on in the rest of the whole book. We're given a picture of heaven and what God's up to and what the other people in heaven are up to. And we can assume that while everything else is going on for the rest of the book, this stuff is still happening in the background in heaven. If you've ever wondered what heaven is like, here is a glimpse. The first thing we learn is that it all revolves around a throne in the center. And the one sitting on the throne 
is God. God is at the middle and the center of everything that happens in heaven. Heaven and indeed all of reality revolves around the one sitting on the throne. And the throne is at the center of all life in this heavenly vision. So God is at the middle of it. Around that throne are 24 other thrones occupied by 24 elders. If you visualize the elders as symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 disciples, I believe that the the elders represent all believers across time. These are everybody who, who counts among the people of God are these 24 elders. They're all the faithful people throughout history who have been redeemed. And then there are seven torches before the throne representing the seven spirits of God and a sea of glass like crystal. And then you get these bizarre, weird-sounding creatures with the six wings and eyes all over the place. I got a thing for eyes, they creep me out. So these creatures are really giving me the heebie-jeebies. One looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, one looks like a man, and one looks like an eagle in flight. And, And many scholars believe that these creatures are meant to represent all created beings, right? You've got animals, you've got birds, You've got, you know, both lions and an ox, and you've got humans. So they kind, of, they kind of represent everything in creation. So that's the cast of characters that we see in heaven. We see God the Father. We see God the Spirit. We've got all believers, and you've got all kinds of creatures, and they're singing around, continually singing a song to God. So we get to the first song that we encounter, and here's what they're singing. They're singing... Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So what they're doing is they're just praising God just for being God. They're declaring his holiness before all of creation, and they're saying his name, the great I am. Not only is God the great I am, he's the great always was, and he's the great always will be. And that's enough. If that was the only thing we knew about God, that would be enough for him to deserve all of our worship and praise and our devotion forever and ever. He is, just for being who he is, worthy of eternal worship and praise. Just for being God, he's worthy of it. And then it says that whenever the living creatures do this, which is always, the 24 elders, all all of the believers, fall down before him and they cast their crowns before him and worship him with great fervency. They're giving up everything that they've got to, to worship God because he's worthy of everything. They're pouring it all out before him. And this is where the second song comes into play. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. So now all of creation and all believers are singing praise to God the Father, casting down everything they have, giving it all up before God because of how worthy he is. He's worthy of the glory, he's worthy of honor, he's worthy of power. Not only is he the I am, but he created all things. Without him, none of this would exist. He is who he is, and he's worthy of praise. He's made everything 
which is only the beginning of the things that he's done to deserve our praise and our worship. So remember a couple weeks ago how we talked about how revelation is this insight into an invisible spiritual reality that's all around us all the time? That's what this is a picture of. This is going on in heaven right now. People and creatures and all of creation are going nuts in heaven because of how great God is and because of the awesome things that he's done. They're worshiping him, not because they have to, not because they've been conscripted into some kind of heavenly choir, but because they are genuinely excited to be in the presence of someone who is so great. This reality is more real than the pews that are beneath you right now. More real than anything you've ever experienced before. This is the meaning of life. It is the picture of what life is. Everything exists to bring God glory. So in the midst of this invisible reality, made visible to John for the purpose of writing this book, something amazing happens. There's activity that rocks the heavenly worship. Let's look at what it is in Revelation 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy of to open the scroll or to look into it. So there's this scroll with seven seals, and it gets produced. It's written on front and back, but nobody is worthy to open it. Dr. Mulholland, my New Testament professor, believes that this scroll represents the whole will of God. And I'm inclined to agree with him on that. And John's weeping loudly because nobody is even worthy to look at the scroll, much less open it. And that's a sad thing, right? We want to know what God's will for us is. We need to believe that God has some kind of will for this world, that God can make some kind of sense out of the nonsense that we encounter in the world. And we want to know that God is in control of it and that God has a will and that will is good. We would love to be able to make sense of what's going on in the world, but we're not worthy of that knowledge. Nobody is. The most holy saint and the most mighty angel isn't worthy to open this scroll. But then one of the elders tells John to cheer up because the Lion of Judah has conquered so he can open the scroll and break the seals. So John's excited. He's jazzed about this Lion of Judah, but he turns around to see this Lion of Judah that's been promised, but instead of a lion, he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, but a lamb that was slain. Imagine expecting a mighty, conquering lion and then seeing a slain, dead lamb instead. This is a theme of the whole book of Revelation, y'all. That Jesus has every right to be known as the lion, but he chooses to show up as the lamb. It shows us how Jesus uses his power and his authority 
Not in a coercive way, but through power and might of his sacrifice. He has every right to be the butt-kicking lamb that comes and takes names, but instead, he's the self-sacrificial lamb. This lion and lamb, both in one person, clearly represents Jesus. So Jesus takes the scroll and opens it, and everybody in heaven just goes absolutely crazy for it. They fall down, and they've got a harp and incense, which is the prayers of the saints, and they sing a new song. And the song is, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. Have you ever had something that impressed you so much you just couldn't get over it? There's this kid on Roger's baseball team that runs so fast, it amazes me every time. I could be talking to someone else or, or doing something else or coaching one of the kids, but if I turn around and see Rondé running the bases, I just have to stop and say, doggone it, that kid's fast. Every single time, it amazes me. I cannot get over how impressive this kid's speed is. I just can't help it. I think that's a little bit of what's going on here in heaven. Jesus has come to open the seals and unfurl the scroll, and everybody in heaven just can't get over how awesome and how impressive this is. So all the same people that were here worshiping God the Father on the throne have started singing a new song worshiping Jesus because of his great worth to open the scrolls of the will of God. And they lay out the reasons why he's worthy. He's worthy because he was slain, because he ransomed the people of God, because he made a new kingdom of priests cobbled together out of all the people from every tribe, language, and nation. They can't get over how awesome and how worthy Jesus is. They, this scroll opening is a mind-blowing experience for them. But it doesn't stop there. Because then all of a sudden, you've got all the elders who, remember, represent the believers, and all the creatures who are the created beings, and then hundreds of thousands of angels, and they show up and they start singing along, praising Jesus for his incredible worth to open the scrolls, and they start singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. You've got this massive chorus praising Jesus because he was the lamb who was slain. And he's worthy to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it's overwhelming. But it doesn't stop there. Because then if we didn't get the message before, John lays it out for us plain. Every creature on heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and every single being, whether heavenly or earthly, in all of creation sings along to this song. But this time, they're not just singing to God the Father, who is the one on the throne, and they're not just singing to Jesus Christ, who is the lamb that was slain. They're singing to both of them. And John is making it explicitly clear here. Jesus Christ is co-equal with God. 
He is equally worthy of the praise that is due to God the Father. So you've got Jesus Christ the Lamb, you've got God the Father on the throne, and you've got the seven spirits of God in the room. Jesus Christ is the Son, God the Father is there, God the Spirit is there, God is a trinity, he's triune, and they worship the triune God by singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And our scene ends with the creatures shouting, Amen, and the elders falling down and worshiping. It's glorious and ongoing and a triumph for the Son of God. This is the invisible reality of our world. This is the majestic worship in heaven centered around the person of our triune God, who he is and what he's done and how incredibly worthy is our God. So there's a number of challenges that we have from this passage. There's a number of things that that this worship challenges us to do the first challenge is for us to ask ourselves is the throne in the center of my life we see in heaven the throne of god is in the center of everything it's it's the the thing that everything revolves around but so often i find that i want to make my own little podunk throne the center of my life I want to act as if my being is at the center of what's important for me. But it's clear anything that takes center stage in our lives that's not the throne of God is an idol. How often have I made an idol of myself or of any other thing that's not worthy like God is worthy? The second challenge is Do we really believe that Christ is worthy? I hear it all the time and I sing about it in church and I I would tell you that Christ is worthy, but am I living as if he is worthy of all that I have and all that I am? I don't know. And if I am, am I sufficiently impressed by his worth? I don't think I'm living like I'm sufficiently impressed by the worthiness of Jesus. The second, the third challenge, I mean, is are we worshiping well privately? Am I pondering in my heart how worthy Jesus is on a daily basis? Am I expressing my gratitude and my worship to him in in daily prayer and devotion? Or... Do I come here on Sunday and say it and then forget about it for the rest of the week? Am I too attached to my crown, to my ego, to my pride to cast it down before God? I can tell you, we'd better get over it if that's how we feel. Because if we're going to go to heaven and we're going to feel at home there, (laughs) I'd look awfully silly if I was holding on to my Stupid little crown while everyone else is casting them before Jesus. I'd look awfully silly insisting on my own ego and my own pride and my own accomplishments and my own stuff that I'm holding on to them while everybody else 
is worshiping the one who is worthy. It's just what you'd look stupid. We've got to get used to casting our stuff before Jesus or else we're going to look awfully out of place if we want to go to heaven. I'll tell you where you can hold on to your crown and your ego if you want. It's not a great place to be. Are we worshiping well privately? The next question is, are we worshiping well corporately? When we get together in church, are we worshiping well? I think we can admit that our worship doesn't resemble this heavenly worship too much. Or am I too enamored with my own dignity to fall on my face before God in worship, worrying about what other people might see? Am I, am I too worried to engage my emotions in worship before God because I don't want other people to think I'm some kind of holy ruler? We got to get over it. If we're going to fit in in heaven, we got to get over that kind of stuff and practice worship corporately now. So there's a ton of challenge in this passage, but there's a ton of grace too. Because the grace is that this God who is worthy of all the honor and glory and praise and more, this God loves you and he wants you. He desires you. The worship and the worth and the praise doesn't go to God's head. He doesn't have an ego about it. He takes all of that and he spends all of himself to be in relationship with you. And the good news that this world is bonkers and it's broken and it's tragic and it's sad frequently. But we serve a God who is worthy to open the seal and who will make it right in the end. We serve a God who will dwell with us again, who will wipe away every tear, and who will make the world right. These songs aren't just an interlude in a book about the end times. They're not just a skippable Tom Bombadil distraction. These songs are the whole meaning of life. The whole point of creation is to glorify God. The whole point of the book of Revelation is showing us how God is going to go about getting to the earth to the point where it mirrors what's happening in heaven. Jesus said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal of the book. God is going to put it right in the end. He is going to to make earth and heaven one place, a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells among people again. That's the goal. And our privilege is that we get to meet together every Sunday to make our little slice of earth that much more like heaven. As we join in this song that's already going on there and we lift our praises to God and we worship him and we give him his due. We get to take all the mess and all the brokenness in our lives and we get to give them to Jesus. We get to take our crowns and our accomplishments 
and our goods and our services and our egos and our pride and we get to cast them before Jesus, offering it all to him in worship. And we get to join together to proclaim that Jesus is worthy and that he's got a good future in store for this world of ours. So today, let's commit to being better worshipers. Let's commit to letting go of our thrones and our crowns and our pride and our stuff and our hang-ups. Cast them aside so that we can give to Jesus or at least approach Jesus what he's worth. He is worthy of anything we can give him. That's the bottom line. So let's worship God as if he is worthy of that today. Well, both privately and corporately. Let's commit to deeper, less inhibited worship as we lift high the name of our God. Let's pray. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered by your blood. You ransomed for God, saints for every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God. And they will reign over the earth. To the one who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. God, I pray that you'll inspire us to deeper, truer, more passionate worship. God, give us your grace as we give all of ourselves to you. You are worthy of it, God. In your name I pray, amen.